Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and I'm excited to cross over today to Newport Beach, California, to catch up with super agent and uh, premier sports agent, Lee Steinberg. Welcome to the podcast, Lee. Thank you. Happy to be with you. Yeah, good morning here from Bangkok. I'm sitting here with my coffee, and I know it's the uh, afternoon there in California, and I'm looking forward to going through and, and really unpacking literally almost 50 years of your amazing career in the world of sports. And for some of our listeners who might not know you, let me do a quick introduction, uh, and then, of course, we go into the stories itself here. So, Lee... Uh, as I mentioned earlier, is a is best known for his work working with athletes uh, and creating brands out of them. Um, so he is a sports agent, as we call him. And to really illustrate that further, Lee was the real live inspiration for the Oscar-winning movie Jerry Maguire. So he is the Jerry Maguire in the movie, which is actually, by the way, one of my favorite movies. I love that. Uh, I have a little story to that myself later. Lee's worked across his career with every one from American football, basketball, baseball, hockey, boxing, and golf, uh, and I'm sure we'll play, we'll talk about that uh, in more detail. In total, has secured over four billion dollars worth of contracts for his 300 plus athletes, and also generated almost. $850 million worth for charities around the world. Uh, Lee's been featured on 60 Minutes, Larry King Live, The Day Today Show, and, and many other, of course, you know, magazines, uh, and of course, is a speaker within the industry. So let's get started, and let's hear from the man himself how it all started for yourself, coming out of Berkeley University there. Uh, and let's make sure I get this year right here in 1973. So, Lee, please take us a bit back doing your doctor degree in law in Berkeley. You got the Vietnam War and also other crazy things going on there. But, you know, tell us a bit about it. So um, I went undergrad to Berkeley in the tumultuous days of the 1960s. And I was student body president in the height of the Vietnam War and the governor of California was Ronald Reagan. Wow. And every time we demonstrated against the war, he cracked down. And I learned everything I needed to learn about the art of negotiating from dealing with then governor, later President Reagan. Um, I was a dorm counselor in an undergraduate dorm working my way through law school. And they moved the freshman football team into the dorm. And one of the students was the quarterback on the team, Steve Bartkowski. And in 1975, he became the very first pick in the first round of the National Football League draft. And he asked me to represent him. Uh, I was out of law school a couple of years. And there really wasn't an organized field of sports agentry. As a matter of fact, franchises could hang up the phone and say they don't deal with agents. But we had a competitive football league, the World Football League, and it enabled us to get the largest rookie contract in NFL history. And we flew to Atlanta to sign the contract the next day, and there were Klieg lights flashing in the sky like for a movie premiere. A huge crowd was 
pressed up against the police line, and the first thing we heard was, we interrupt the evening news to bring you a special news bulletin. Steve Bartkowski and his attorney have just arrived at the Atlanta airport. We switch you live for an in-depth interview. <laughs> wow, okay. That's a nice start to the industry here. <laughs> we weren't in Berkeley anymore, and <clears throat> my dad had raised me with two core values. One was treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was try to make a meaningful difference and help people who couldn't help themselves. And so I saw that the athletes were the celebrities and the movie stars. And I thought if I could get them to go back to the high school communities that helped shape them, set up a scholarship fund or work with a church or boys and girls club, they could put down roots and make a difference in the quality of life. And if they would go back to the university communities and, again, set up a scholarship fund and work with the alums, um, they could lay a foundation for future second career. And at the pro level, ask them to establish a charitable foundation with the leading business figures, political figures, and uh, community leaders, and take on a, a cause. And so running back work done, just put the 200th single mother and their family into the first home they'll ever own by making a down payment. So that was 48 years ago and 64 round draft picks uh, in football uh, ago. Yeah, and, and I think, again, you know, obviously having done my homework online, your your charitable part and, and the ph philanthropy part is definitely comes across very strongly that I think it, I've read many times that you, in some many cases you're only taking athletes who have that sort of vision as well, right, who want to give back. And, and I think you even maybe walked away from clients who don't share that same passion. Is, is that sort of correct? So we profile players looking right. for those with a, a big heart because of their profile, they can trigger imitative behavior, um, especially in rebellious adolescence. So the heavyweight boxer, Lennox Lewis, we had to do a, a public service announcement that said, real men don't hit women. Mm. And that do more to trigger behavioral change in rebellious adolescents than a thousand authority figures ever could. Yeah, I love that. And uh, especially in today's world, you know, where the, the word ESG, right, um, especially the S part in it, uh, social is such an important thing for, for companies, uh, for people to invest in in uh, project. And I do believe, um, like what you just pointed out, that uh, the social aspect of sports and the message which athletes can, can send out is so much bigger than probably anything else anyone else can do. So I, I uh, you know, and you've been doing this for, as I said, over 40 years already before um, that ever became a hot topic. So I, I really like that. Um, now let's let's go, you know, you know, so you've done your first uh, big deal here. You're already on national TV now. <laughs> Where do you go from there? What, what, what happens after that? Because I do recall, again, reading that at that time, it weren't really a company, yet, right? I think you were literally working out of your parents' house, and uh, so you really was. It's not like you you have this big law firm there uh, with with people. Um, so how do you go from you know cutting this deal with someone who goes to school with you to you know, to the next level here? 
Well, I figured out pretty quickly that quarterback was a position in football that led to ancillary revenue streams. They had the most profile. They signed the biggest contracts for the longest period of time. They did endorsements. So I started aggregating quarterbacks in football and then quickly uh, started baseball and then basketball. And um, pretty soon it grew and grew and grew. And then I realized the key in business was to start being able to put people around me that the world recognizes superstars um, so that we could uh, grow. And um, pretty soon we had half the starting quarterbacks in football and um, were able to start signing the very first pick in the first round of the NFL draft. And uh, the charitable programs grew and grew and um uh and started growing in different sports so i did boxing and and olympic athletes uh the uh the skater brian boitano and um it uh and then wrote my first uh, best-selling book on the art of negotiating winning with integrity how to get what you want without losing your soul and it um we started to add more and more agents to the firm and um, started to spread into a variety of different sports. And then I really felt like franchises that were wedded to cities shouldn't move. So I went up to San Francisco that was about to lose the San Francisco Giants Mm -hmm. and help them save the team. So it was sold to a group in Tampa Bay, uh, but Mayor Jordan asked me to see if I could convince the National League it was against the best interest to have the franchise abandon the city. And um, we had to put an ownership group together and a stadium plan. And um, eventually we were able to save the team. And I got sued for $3 billion, but... um, talk about blood out of a turnip, but at any rate, we saved that team and then did the same for the Oakland A's. And then I led the battle to save the LA Rams and it uh, stepped out of the role and became more of a steward of sport. Right. Yeah. And, and again, this is sort of where, you know, we're going through obviously the different decades here of your career. Um, and we're still sort of literally in the, in the eighties here, uh, when you did some of this, I believe, right? Uh, what you just mentioned was the San Francisco Giants and certain other things. Um, how do you, again, how did that come about? I mean, you are a lawyer by training, obviously, therefore you're not just looking to, uh, tr- you know, work on contracts for athletes. Um, uh, but how do you switch into, you know, now trying to save teams and, and working with, with cities to do that? Uh, was it just by coincidence or how did it all come about? Um, I always thought that my role had to be bigger than simply looking at the narrow interests of contracts, but to be a steward of the sport. And so, for example, I went to owners and said, we're looking at this wrong. The real battle in sports is not labor versus management. And if all we do is have 
acrimonious negotiations that pit players against teams, we're just pushing fans away. Uh, And if all we do is have bad collective bargaining, which pits millionaires against billionaires, we're just turning off fans. What we Mm. really should be about is can we grow the sport? Can we figure out ways to do enormous TV contracts and build brand new stadia with ancillary revenue stream and use the internet and create things like NFL or major league baseball networks. And I ought to be the ally with owners together to build revenue streams and brand. And so we form sort of an unofficial alliance to see how we could not have bad negotiations, not have strikes, never cut off our uh, primary product and uh, build together. So um, it was a different approach to representing players, which is I had the big stars, they had the teams, let's grow the pie. Right. Let's work together rather than against each other. I like. I really like that. I, I think it's a, it's a, a really good, great way to look at it, um, where your role is not just let's get the most money for my clients, which of course makes you money too, but to work together. Um, I think that is that's. I really like that that angle there. Now, before we get into a bit more of that, then how you how that obviously manifested itself over those forty years. Um, let's talk maybe just just let's throw some names around here. Um, of athletes you have represented in the different sports, which, you know, the world would recognize. So, uh, you know, I'm sure the list is long, but maybe give us a couple of, uh, you know, your biggest American football stars or baseball players, basketball, you know, boxing you mentioned already, Lennox Lewis earlier, uh, and maybe in the Olympic sports. Well, in uh, football, for example, I have 12 players in the Hall of Fame, uh, quarterbacks Warren Moon, Steve Young, Troy Aikman, wow. currently Patrick Mahomes, Tua Tungo Vailoa. We have players like in the Hall of Fame, Derek Thomas, Thurman Thomas, Bruce Smith, Howie Long, John Lynch, Tony Gonzalez. In baseball, we had CC Sabathia, Pudge Rodriguez, Will Clark, um, Manny Ramirez. Um, in ice skating, Brian Boitano, uh, Kerry Strug in uh, Olympics in boxing. Uh, we mentioned Lennox Lewis, but Oscar De Loya. Right. And anyway, uh, cast of uh, uh, thousands. Yeah. Lots of amazing superstars there. Now, the company, and when it all started, I would believe was called Steinberg, Murat, and Dunn. Um, let's talk yes. a bit about that because, again, um, and, and I don't know at what point in time exactly you partnered up with the three other gentlemen there. Um, and then, obviously, the firm you know, was around for a reasonably long time until it was sold. Um, let's just talk a bit about it because, uh, you know, again, this is an important part, I think, of your career, which also later on created some challenges. And, you know, in the podcast, we always love to not just hear of all the great things which worked, but also the things which didn't. And, and you know, I'm sure someone with a career like yourself, uh, there were these moments. So. So, you know, Mr. Jeff Murad and David Dunn, uh, your business partners there when it all started, um, you know, how was was it just three of you lawyers and going, let's get together and, and build a firm or different skill sets? Uh, how, how did that come together? 
Well, Jeff Morad uh, was my partner for 22 years. Mm-hmm. And together later, David Dunn came. But um, Jeff really ran our baseball practice. And we probably would have been together forever, but his aspiration was to uh, own a baseball team. And so at the end, he became a minority partner and uh, CEO of the Arizona Diamondbacks baseball team. And later he owned the San Diego Padres. But together we created some interesting businesses. In the infancy of the internet, we created the first athlete online business called uh, Athlete Direct. And we took leading baseball a player at that time who was Ken Griffey Jr. and the leading basketball player, Michael Jordan, and football quarterbacks. And for the very first time, you could go online and through AOL and read their weekly diaries, and you could see their uh, about their charitable right. foundation. Okay. And we designed an e-commerce application, and uh, we put a couple hundred thousand dollars in R&D into it and then sold it to venture capitalists uh, a few years later for like $25 million. We then created a big marketing company and sold that later. We created a information system where if you lived in Los Angeles, but you were a New York giant fan, you could get information about that. So we entrepreneurially created a whole series of businesses that we dreamed up and then sold them to venture capitalists. And then ultimately uh, sold our firm. And then David Dunn and uh, uh, some of the younger agents got discontented and they left and formed their own uh, firm. And so really, if you have younger people in your firm, you have to be careful to give them equity and um, everything that you might want, whether it's name recognition, equity, compensation. You have to be careful to give the younger lawyers. And I thought I had done that, but evidently not enough. Yeah. And, and I, again, I, having had conversation with Donald Dell and, and David Falk and others, uh, which are similar, obviously, in, in some sense of what you're doing. Um, again, some of those stories have come across there as well, of course, right? And there, there are, uh, you know, they're well um, recorded in many ways, uh, the split between the two of them and other things. And uh, you know, and I guess that is always the tough part, right? The agents have so much control, right? There with the players, with the athletes. Um, how do you keep them all together? And uh, you know, now I, I think you 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 shared it again with another interview, sort of about the five things you know I wish someone would have told you before you started the business, um, and that was one of them. I think you know how to incentivize younger employees and and I guess keep them loyal and on, right? To go a little deeper into that, uh, your learning of that over those years because again we all have that right we all have young millenniums now or, or generation zets and they even operate different than the ones you were talking about earlier so w- what i learned over time and have learned to do much better is that every aspiration that i would have as the head of a company younger people would have too so i made sure to have the world recognize them as superstars Mm -hmm. and to give them unique areas that they could have autonomy over. 
and importantly, to give them equity so they could share in the growth of the business. And firms split up where the primary person is somehow jealous over the success. So I grew to cherish the uh, growth and success and to realize that if I wanted to have growth in business in a larger footprint, that it was going to come because people um, accepted someone else as giving them quality service. And that you could make the argument that in the time it took to train other people, I could do everything better myself. Well, that might be true, but I would do everything myself, which gave an unlivable lifestyle. So I've been able to create in the last 20 years a whole set of really talented superstars and rejoice in their success. Yeah. Yeah, no, and and like you said, uh, you know, being a business owner and an entrepreneur myself, uh, we do a lot of times feel like we can do it always better in a sense, right? And and therefore could try to control it. Um, at the end of the day, that also means you you are the bottleneck in the business to grow. Uh, and I'm certain that's I think what you're talking about here. So again, I've been much happier having. Uh, a whole talented younger generation uh, that can take it the next step. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's let's talk a little bit about the competition here, uh, because when you started, as you said, you know, in in the in the seventies, there wasn't really that many out there. But I know Mark McCormick, of course, with IMG was already there. I think Donald started, uh, you know, shortly after, obviously in golf and tennis, and and you and you are here starting in the American football space. How would you see yourself? And I'm certain you guys all know each other. Uh, and met uh, across the years. Uh, what's your relationship with them? Uh, of course, uh, Mark is no longer around. Oh, I uh, greatly enjoyed um, the uh, success of those people and those that were pioneers I learned from. And um, it's uh, so David Falk was doing in um, basketball what I was doing in football. And I looked right. at him as. Uh, as a uh, peer and we had great discussions and talked at times about sort of uh, putting our practices together never happened but brilliant guy and and uh, I admired all the innovations uh, he did and Mark McCormick uh, came up with the relationship between actually owning the uh, event itself Mm -hmm. and uh, which, which was a breakthrough, and and that formed the model for what came later where various firms aggregated uh, agencies in a variety of different sports, but then built out a big marketing arm and then content supplies, so sports-themed television, um, uh, radio, video games, um, content, a studio in a virtual sense, not a four-wall sense. And so the merging of all that, and so now we have a number of superpower groups like that that are are uh, uh, doing it, and, it's, uh, and, and the payoff comes in the marketing and, and merchandising. And uh, so it's a brave new world in in sports, which uh, uh, has merged over with entertainment. And uh, 
there's still a number of independent um, agencies. There are what I call multinational companies that are pretty dominant in our field. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the IMG now, uh, what it is around the world, having merged, obviously, with multiple entities and what obviously Mark built initially uh, is, is a very different beast. Um, you know, so, you know, you got some personal stories with, with one of them, uh, you guys sitting somewhere over a glass of wine or, you know, a coffee in the world and, and you know, figuring out how to divide and conquer or, you know, it never get, got that close. No, we knew where things were going that um, because you could see um, that three local TV stations were going to morph into cable television, satellite uh, television, and the the dispersion of content platforms was going to mean more sports, more games, more highlight shows, more interview shows, more opinion shows, more feature shows, um, more entertainment shows, more of everything. And it was going to create more rights fees, um, more bidders, and what was a tiny little industry was going to turn into more, more documentaries, more features, more series, and it was going to be a brave new world. And that those people who were in the content part of the business were going to do uh, quite well. Right. Now, the fact that in the United States, football was going to break out our football, NFL football. Yeah. So that 71 of the top 100 shows were going to be NFL football, which meant that NFL football was not only the most popular sport by two to one, but the most popular form of televised entertainment. That required the foresight to see that baseball, which had been the most popular sport, were there. But while the rest of the world venerated soccer. And so the problem entertainment-wise is that the most popular sport in this country doesn't travel well yes. overseas. And it's uh, so we need to grow soccer from a younger point with academies to get our best athletes in the United States into the most popular uh, sport worldwide. Correct. Yeah, and, and later on, I, I want to talk a bit about sort of comparing some salaries here uh, when we get to that um, in terms of American football uh, players versus soccer players or, you know, the, the rest of the world, what we call football players around the world. So, uh, you know, that because there's some interesting comparison and, and uh, we'll get to that later. Um, did you ever uh, have uh, soccer players under contract too? Did you ever represent anyone in that space? No. Um, in 1994, I represented the U.S. team that was playing in the World Cup. Mm-hmm. So I represented them collectively and negotiated with the Federation. And uh, that was a team that had players like Tom Dooley, John yes. Harks, C. Lawless. And um, it. we keep waiting for the sport to break loose. And every... World Cup, you keep thinking it's 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 going to break loose, and 
I did um, Americans like sports with a finite chance of success or failure on every play. And failing that, we like high scoring. So soccer has continuous play without high scoring. So I made a series of suggestions to Americanize soccer and wrote an article in the New York Times. And the fact that I'm still alive is a miracle uh, because uh, it was not well received. All right, okay. And so um, there was a, a type of soccer called missile that fit American taste better. But um, I have a friend, Dan Hunt, who owns the Frisco American Soccer Club, and, and he tells me about all the younger soccer players are training. And so when that hits, I think we'll be in better shape. Right, right. Yeah. So you stuck to your guns there, which also I think just to uh, maybe check in there, um, you're, you you ever had an office outside of the U.S. or you were always uh, based in, in America um, or you ever tried to put branches around the world like Donald or, or you know, Mark McCormick did? No, it's uh, I have probably traveled more in America than virtually anybody except someone selling brushes but um the uh but no it, it uh canada yes but um nowhere else right so us was always your playground where obviously we mentioned it earlier you generate over four billion dollars um, yes, for I, athletes I, I explored china i thought about um trying to develop the chinese market but um but no we've got so many baseball teams, so many football teams, so many basketball teams here. It's been a, a adequate market. Uh, yeah, they're more than adequate. I mean, we all know the U.S. is the single biggest sports market on the planet, uh, and the NFL is the single biggest sports property around the world. So you are in a <laughs> in a good space there, and certain uh, you had you know there were plenty of things to do. Um, now. When you when you look at the scale of the business, how it grew, as I said, a couple of you had your partners, and then you were just give me a, give us a sense of staffing people, um, maybe the the offices you had in the across the country, um, or some revenue numbers, just just to sort of how when it all started, you know, to maybe where it is now or where it was at one point in time. Well, we with Steinberg Morad, we. I would just say we sold the business for $130 million to Asante in the year 2000. Right. And um, we probably had, it, it's never been a huge, usually staff business. I would say we had probably six football agents, five baseball agents, and probably 15 staff. And then when I bought my own business back and we probably had in two, from 2003 to about 2010, we had one, two, three, four, five, about six football agents, a couple baseball agents and maybe 15 staff. Hmm. And then in the new iteration of Steinberg Sports and Entertainment, we probably have, um, 
I think we have eight agents and um, probably a total of about 20 staff. Right. And, and we have agents spread out so that, well, the main offices are Los Angeles and Newport Beach. We have agents in Seattle, San Francisco, Baltimore, uh, South Carolina, Seattle, San Francisco, blah, blah, blah. yeah, yeah. Uh, sp spread around. The yeah. And we have a new partner uh, who's um, entrepreneur, whose name is Ron Burkle, and he owns a company called Ukaipa. Right. Interesting. So you, you basically have always tried to keep in a sense, the the sort of a core team, um, you know, it's again, different than, you know, IMG, how they grew around the world, you know, thousands of people now. Um, and it, it's a very challenging business. And the key is always been to keep fixed expenses. Yes. Oh, and profitability high. Absolutely. And it's funny enough, that is, that was Donald Dell's, as I mentioned earlier, he sort of was a mentor to myself. Um, that was probably his biggest uh, comment to me every time. He's Marcus said, watch your overheads or you know, what you call fixed cost, uh, because that will kill you. Um, and that obviously killed all, you know, it killed, but, uh, you know, it's it's the challenge in our business where you, when you grow, um, and like myself, built companies and offices around Asia. Uh, we had at one point in time, eight offices um, in, you know, with 100 people plus people here. Uh, you know, there's, there's big overheads when you are operating in cities like Tokyo and uh, you know and, and others. So, um, yeah, that's uh, you know. So, what what would be your learning on it when you say you know control your fixed cost? Uh, you know, uh, you know. Again, as someone who's that experience like yourself, you know, share that with the younger listeners. So I'll give you an example. There are football players spread all across the country, but if your primary office is in Los Angeles, the difference between locking down campuses like UCLA and SC as opposed to recruiting players from New York and Maine mm -hmm. is that all you have to do is get in your car and drive to UCLA and SC right. as opposed to flying players in from the East Coast. Right. So all things being equal, if you could sign players from local schools or schools that are an hour plane flight away, instead of flying families in from across the country, you've just cut down on your expenses dramatically. Okay. And if you could use the um, SoFi Stadium as a place to go see football games or um, – or Arizona or San Francisco, instead of flying to New York, when possible, you've just cut down your expenses. Right. And if you could take a trip where you were achieving five client maintenance goals instead of one, where you were seeing five clients in one trip instead of one, if you could achieve six goals instead of one, then that would be more cost efficient. Right. 
Yeah, so so really basic uh, things to just think through and and work through. And on the back of it, of course, if you're doing this with a bunch of agents flying around or traveling, you know, closer by or having multiple meetings, that's where automatically you have huge savings. I can see that. Yeah, makes sense. Very interesting. Um, Lee, let's go in a slightly different direction here. Um, you sold the business. Um, so we're now here in the year 2000, um, you know, and – now, again, like I've had this conversation with many other entrepreneurs. It's one thing, of course, it's a big high selling the company and, and getting rewarded for it on the back of it. At the end of the day, it's also it's an end of a of a journey, right? Something you built. Um, you know, we said it earlier. You started the business in you know in in the in the seventies, and now you know twenty five years later or so, um, you're selling it for you know a big good chunk of money here. Talk a bit about it. What was the feeling? What was it? You were excited to, you know, get that big check or, you know, you had a tear in your eye that, you know, some of your life work now is, is moving on. Or did you stay on with the business after or what was the sort of arrangement there? Well, I had to stay on with the business after. And I realized very quickly that what I surrendered was what was most important to me, which was autonomy. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, because I had the charitable bent, I was able to allocate prior to that 30, 35% of my time to creating these charitable and community programs. Right. And once I had sold it, um, the, the group I'd sold it to was looking for profit. Yep. And that created an inherent uh, conflict. And, and then ultimately, the company went public, and the new group was not so interested in American sports. The part of it that intrigued me was to build an empire, like we talked about, which would aggregate a number of different agencies under one roof. So I went ahead with, with their funds and bought another football agency, a basketball agency, a hockey agency, okay. and was going to keep purchasing agencies. But now, all of a sudden, they had a new group that had no interest in the American sports scene and really wanted to go a different direction. So now I'm stuck um, mm -hmm. because they want to cut costs. And that part attracted me. The the but but now they don't want to keep adding agencies. As a matter of fact, they sort of want to cut back. And now I feel stuck and trapped. And so eventually I bought back my football agency and 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 got out of there. But so you know, I was already fine with the amount of money that I was making before we sold. And had more than enough, but, and that was a period where the younger agents felt the pressure and they left. And so I got my autonomy back, but I realized what the problem was in the, that situation. And I was much happier with, with, with my firm back. Right. Well, how long did it take? So you mentioned earlier, I think 99, 2000, you sold, when did you buy it back? Three years. Three years later, bro. So you basically lasted about three years, um, which is quite interesting. <laughs> I realized that I, from 1975 to 2000, I had had the freedom to 
sort of choose the projects and I could go off and go save a baseball team or, or be head of the committee to save the Rams or Madeline Albright and I put together a, the secretary of state, a program to take minefields out of Cambodia and Mozambique and Angola, or I could go off on some project or I could take time to have Cameron Crowe uh, follow me around for Jerry Maguire, or right. I could be technical advisor on, um, on uh, any, any given Sunday, that film, or I could go write a best-selling book and all of a sudden someone could tell me I couldn't do those things. And, and it was a shock. <laughs> and so all of a sudden I had my firm back and I could do all of those things again. Right. Okay, yeah, that makes sense, uh, and, and I, I completely appreciate the feeling there, and, uh, and what it means bringing uh, someone in, whether you're selling it completely, or even if you just bring investors in, right? It always changes dramatically um, how you operate. Um, now, let's, I just wanted to share a little more with Asante Sports Management Group, which is the one who bought you. I have to admit, I really don't know much about them. Uh, you mentioned their plan was to buy. Uh, you ended up buying a bunch of other agencies to build a bigger picture and then they were bought or they were listed and then again that's where it changed or what happened exactly there yes so um the original plan was changed and they started um putting a lot of pressure for cost cutting and so i was discontent they were discontent and uh so, so they were just like trying I, to maximize profits at the end of the day and, and not really looking how to grow further. I understood their point of view, but it was not the right environment for me. But yeah, that makes sense. Now let, let's talk about we're in the we're sort of in the in the early two thousands here. The world has dot com fever, and uh, you know, and then a bit later, it of course bust. And you kind of alluded to it earlier a bit already that. Yeah, you you always felt you were you know you you had interest way beyond just brokering deals, of course, for these big athletes. But uh, so I think you did create some you know what we called websites at the time. Um, you know, I think you did some work with ESPN Sports Center. I think you again you created some other you know online courses and so on. Uh, just talk about that a bit. You know, that's an exciting time of the you know the you know, era. So that was Athlete Direct that I talked about, right. where we created um, the first big athlete website. And um, I was always able to have vision for the future and where it was going. Um, I went to uh, China and um, uh, had the only foreign office in the Forbidden City. And um, right. we... we um, came up with a plan to uh, create a, a education, a university for uh, Chinese athletes. And uh, I, there was a big Chinese charity and I teamed with it and we held a concert at the Great Wall, which uh, had Alicia Keys as the headliner and voice to me, Cindy Lauper. And, uh, raised uh, a fair amount of money for that charity and and uh, sold the DVDs and uh, I got, was thrown a luncheon by every post-war 
Chinese uh, leader's son or daughter, so it was Mao and Shou Enlai and the rest of them. And I lectured at uh, Beijing University and um, came up with a plan to build the first uh, film school in Shanghai. And it uh, so anyway, I was sort of ahead of the curve on that. And uh, but. As the 2000s went on, a series of reverses happened in my personal life, and um, my two boys were diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, which is an eye disease that leads to uh, blindness, and they both became blind. And my father died uh, uh, a long death from cancer, and we lost a home in a beach city to mold. And for the first time in my life, I started to, to experience behavioral problems and drinking too much. And um, eventually in, in 2010, I, I crashed and, uh, uh, and uh, when finally decided that I had to address it and I went off to, uh, to sober living and decided that if nothing else, I'd be sober and I'd be a good father. And uh, so I closed down my business and I gave it to the younger agents and um, I worked a 12-step program with a unique fellowship. And last couple of weeks ago, I celebrated 12 and a half years of sobriety, but I had to rebuild and uh, I waited a couple of years until I was... Uh, you know, was sure that, that I was behaviorally okay. And then I had to start again by uh, raising money and finding investors who, who believed in me. And, and we started the whole process over again. Wow. And uh, I formed uh, Steinberg Sports and Entertainment and got funded. And here we went again. Yeah, you were again. No, and I, I really acknowledge you for sharing this. Uh, and I know publicly there's been obviously, I think, something in your book as well about it. Um, because, again, clearly there is some lessons there uh, and the stress you just described, I'm sure you had personally. And I'm really sorry to hear that about your boys. I, I did not see that anywhere, actually, in the uh, when I was doing my homework. But uh, and of course, your death of your father. So uh, that that would throw a curveball at anyone. Uh, I, I can imagine um, now, thinking back there, and again, you know, without belaboring this point too much, but uh, you know, what is it sort of, if you would now go back to that time and, and the lesson you learned it, or, you know, the, what would you tell someone who has that same challenge or, or you know, anything you could share still uh, and before we move on? Sure. Um, nothing in my work life ever particularly threw me because I would walk into the office every day with the understanding that notwithstanding how much I had prepared for a certain problem, what our plans were, something might go awry. Yeah. And um, I expected that and understood that. But in my private life, I had the illusion that somehow I could keep my father safe, that I could um, keep my children safe, that mm. I could provide a house over my uh uh, that if I just worked harder and I was more creative and 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 I just spent more energy that I could protect them all and mm. and of course I couldn't and and 
what I learned is that you can have these problems in your private life, but the, you really don't need to connect it to drinking. And um, uh, you can survive them without using that crutch. And uh, if there are people out there who are struggling and confused and despondent because of problems with addictive substances who are uh, hopeless, just know there's help out there. And I had gone to a level where I'm sitting on my father's uh, bed in our house in Los Angeles, and I closed up my office and my business. And my only uh, coherent thought was where I could find more vodka. And if you're out there and you're struggling, there is help available and you don't have to do it alone. And there are 12 step programs. And if you're surrounded by destruction and detritus, it takes some work, but you can get back to a much happier life. And if I could do it, you can do it. And uh, I reestablished my relationship with my kids. And, and uh, my comeback is uh, continuous sobriety and being a good father. And everything that's happened in conventional success is just a cherry on the top. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, great. As I said, I really appreciate that. And like you said, uh, you know, when when you when I do my homework, clearly there were issues, as you said, from alcohol. Uh, you know, you had, of course, the litigation. There was uh, one of your partners and another financial issue. So uh, it looked like a big mess. Uh, and I can see how uh, how that you know turned out here. But let's talk about the new beginning here, the new Steinberg Sports and Entertainment. Um, and all the great things you guys are doing now here. But uh, before we get there, maybe uh, let's go a little back. No, I want to talk about the Jerry Maguire and, and certain other things, of course, you've done there. Um, it just tell, tell us a bit about it. You know, you know, of course, you know Tom Cruise as Jerry Maguire, sort of uh, playing you, I guess. Uh, that's pretty cool. Um, uh, you know, and I, I'll tell you a fun little story on my side here. So what I recall, the movie, I think, came out around – 1996-97 I think or in that ballpark which was about the time when I was setting up my own company uh, and I must have watched the movie probably 10 times uh, because I, I got extremely expired by it not that obviously I was that type of agent we were more in a different type of the sports industry but uh, just him stepping out and, and, and doing what he did obviously there on his own uh, inspired me a lot um, and I, as I said, in my early days of my own business, uh, at the first year or two, as usual, when you struggle a bit, uh, that movie really, uh, you know, helped me. So uh, I want to thank you <laughs> for being there and, and guiding them along into the movie. But, you know, I just love the movie and, and God knows how many times I watch it. But tell us a bit about it. You know, what happened behind the scenes? You know, how did it start? And, uh, you know, of course, uh, anything, any other fun stories from it? So, uh, Writer-director Cameron Crowe called me up in 1993 and asked if he could follow me around and pick up atmosphere for a film that would center around a sports agent. Mm -hmm. And so he started following me at the NFL draft in 1993. I had the first pick there, Drew Bledsoe. And so he went everywhere I went and he listened to things that were happening and he um he was a fly on the wall and i told him stories and then he went to the league meetings in palm desert in 1993 and 
I had a free agent, Tim McDonald, that was uh, trying to find a team to go to. One day, we went up to Tim's hotel room, and Lou Jobs and Moneyline was on CNN in the background, and and Cameron was in interviewing Tim and asked him what he was looking for in the process, and Tim gestured towards the screen and said, I'm looking for a team to show me victory. I'm looking for a team to show me respect. I'm looking for a team to show me a big contract and Cameron wrote mine, show me the money. <laughs> and uh, he, he went to a series of games with me and the, uh, and pro day at USC and, and the Super Bowl and my Super Bowl party and, and sat in my office and I told him stories, lots and lots of stories. So mm. then he incorporated that into the script and I was technical advisor, so I had to vet the script to make sure the willing suspension of disbelief that keeps you in a picture didn't get ruined. And uh, he assigned me actors like Cuba Gooding Jr. And I took him to the Super Bowl and he had to pretend he was a wide receiver client of mine all week. And he hung out with wide receivers. And uh, I had to show the quarterback in the film played by Jerry O'Connell how to throw a spiral with the football because he had gone to NYU and they didn't have football there. And, uh, and then, uh, and there's a lot of life up there on the screen. And, and, um, and for 25 years, I haven't gone out in public to an airport or to a table where someone didn't run up and either ask me to say, or say those four words. (laughs) Show me the, and, and, so it was a fun experience. Yeah, like I said, I, I absolutely love that movie, and clearly those are you know there's some great lines in there, and uh, glad you were a part of that. Now another one, which again, why we just hang sticking around the movie world a bit here, is of course Any Given Sunday, Al Pacino, another unbelievable movie, but another one of my all time favorites. Uh, what were you doing there? I guess you were also consulting on that. So that movie was that was Oliver Stone was his director, mm-hmm. and I was technical advisor on that one too. And so that originally was supposed to be a rapper named P Diddy, but he couldn't throw the football. And so Oliver said, "Would you please take a look at him and tell me what you think?" And I said, "Well, powder puff footballs and." Uh, quarterbacks in college could throw better than him. So unless you're going to double him in every scene, you can't do this. So they fired him and it gave a young comedic actor his first dramatic role. And that was Jamie Foxx, who I worked with. And uh, I spent an evening with uh, Al Pacino, who knew nothing about football, but he liked boxing. So I helped put him in role and, and was down in the locker room when he did a big dramatic speech. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, the famous speech. And uh, I had to put Cameron Diaz in role, which was not tough duty. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, so that was sort of fun. I did a baseball movie called Any Given Sunday with Kevin Costner. And anyway, it was uh, and a TV series called Arliss, where I gave him all my worst ideas that I could never do in real life, but Arliss did. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you've had some fun with that, um, working with the with the actors, and of course, creating these these amazing movies there. Um, now let's let's talk about currently, you know, where your firm is now, um, and the 
things you're doing. Of course, Patrick Mahomes is one of your big superstar clients uh, from what I could see. I'm sure there are others, but let's maybe just talk a bit about him for a minute here. Um, probably the hottest maybe quarterback there is uh, at the moment or at least over the last year or two. Huge contract, 450 million US dollars as far as I could see. Uh, for the next 10 years, uh, you know, he had a big boning, uh, signing bonus. And then there was this thing which called the 140 million guarantee. Actually, just explain to me for a minute, what does that mean? What is a, you know, what is the 140 million guarantees versus the 450? He has rolling guarantees so that um, each year, if they would not go ahead with the contract, they'd make him a humongous payment. But okay. there's no real danger of that and um so it's like an exit clause is what the guarantee means is it or right okay so the back in 1984 i did the biggest contract in the history of sports which was steve young with the usfl mm -hmm. and the next time was patrick mahomes so the great thing about that is it's the first time that nfl contracts have actually been at the same par and or exceeded baseball contracts in the, in in Major League Baseball. So just as that one position quarterback, they're now equivalent to to the top of the baseball and basketball market. Yeah. Yeah, again, absolutely. The baseball isn't really my world, so I, I, can't, I can't really compare it. But I, I was looking at uh, football, you know, soccer player salaries here uh, just to get a sense. You know, when you hear 450 million, of course, it's a huge sum, no matter which way you spin it. Um, so it's, I say, you know, in this case, I think it's, let's say, 45 million average a year. I'm not sure whether it ramps up or with the way exactly it's structured. Um, but if you take the biggest soccer stars in the world, like Messi, he's at 97 million, Ronaldo at 70, Neymar at, you know, again, close to, close to 70. Um, so again, soccer players, let's call them uh, here, uh, still making more money than the biggest NFL stars. Um, you know, which is interesting, right? On one side, the NFL is the single largest sport on the planet with more money being generated through TV and everything else. Uh, but of course, it is a one country tri pony trick versus football, soccer around the world. Um, what, what's your, please, your thoughts? Well, first of all, you have 53 players on an NFL squad. Right. So yeah, it's a bigger team. I agree. Um, so that, you know, there's maybe a difference to that. Like I said, maybe it's hard to compare one to the other anyway, um, you know, and maybe it's, you know, but it's just, you know, it's interesting to see because the, in the in the U.S., funny enough, you always hear these, the big contract numbers. That's when, you know, people look up and go $300 million, $450 million. Versus in Europe, it's always uh, mostly quoted on how much he makes every uh, every week, right? These are the weekly salaries of someone makes 200,000 pounds, 400,000 pounds, and then they call it week. They don't actually go, it's a X tens of million dollar contract, which is funny. I don't know whether they're trying to make it sound smaller so we don't get too much too scared when someone gets paid 400,000 pounds a week. Uh, but it's just a different word, form of reporting, I guess. Uh, now, in total, you, you know, you've, you know, I've read 
three billion, four billion dollars. I mean, it's again huge numbers here. Um, you know, and of course, now the the agency commissions in the U.S. is very regulated, right? From what I recall and having previous conversations, um, it's not like in in Europe or in football where it is still somewhat more. Uh, you know, loose, um, where agents can have different sort of commissions, and, and there are many ways of cutting it. But in the US, this is really regulated, right? What's the sort of current percentages uh, an agent takes on on any of this? They're regulated by the players' associations, so and probably much smaller than in soccer. Uh, in football, it's three percent of the money as it comes to the player. In uh, basketball, it's four percent. And in baseball, it's 5%. Now, that's okay. of player contract. In um, endorsements, is unregulated. So it can be anywhere from 10 to 25% of the endorsement. Right. And, and was your firm involved in then helping to find endorsement deals? Or was that not something you guys were doing? No, no, we do that. We do that as well. Okay. So just let's talk about some of that side of it. You know, do you have any sort of great examples of some big, uh, you know, endorsement deals, you know, sponsorship deals you cut for any of your big superstars? Well, Patrick Mahomes does head and shoulders. He does State Farm. He does, um, he's got a massive amount of endorsement deals that he does. So the, Key is to stay in each product category, so you can only do one deal in each product category. So, auto automotive is one product category. Um, um, it's uh, ketchup <laughs> is sure. something else. Yeah, now, so, what, what, a, a big superstar like him, um, you know, we talked about he makes $45 million on his salary plus whatever other bonuses maybe. Uh, what would he, and I'm not saying specifically him, but say in general, what, what is in addition um, you could see these clients are making through endorsements the biggest there? You know, they doubling their salaries or what? what is sort of your normal experience? No, the biggest money in American sports in endorsements is made by golfers. Okay. Now, LeBron James would be an exception. The basketball players have shoe contracts, and because I once had uh, lunch with Phil Knight, and I said, you know, why, why do you pay, you know, $60, $70 million to, uh, to a basketball player and, and you know, $10 million to a football player. He said, well, if you sold 100 million pairs of basketball shoes and and um, 30,000 pairs of cleated shoes, where would you put the money? Right. But it's basketball players make the most money from shoe contracts, but because of the wealth of, uh, of men that own companies, it's um, – Golfers make the most money in uh, endorsements, um, except for a certain number of basketball stars. The football quarterbacks do quite well, but not, you know, 50, 70, 100 million dollars. Right, right. Okay. Interesting. And, and where do you think that comes from? Is it because they got a helmet on, you don't really see them, you don't recognize them as much as, you know, players where, of course, they don't wear gear? 
that's the exact point. You see the face and the shoes of a basketball player. And golfers appeal to a really wealthy demographic. Of course. Absolutely. Which is interesting because I, I and I'd love your thoughts on this. I'll give you a little list here. The billionaire athletes, which have come out of sports so far on the top, of course, it's Michael Jordan was again reported $2.6 billion there. You have Tiger Woods right after with about $2.1 billion. And then you have two golfers, which have been in this game forever, Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus, both over close to about $1.5 billion. Then you get into the football world with Ronaldo of 1.2. Uh, you have a boxer there, Floyd Mayweather, 1.2. Then LeBron, about a bit over a billion. Messi, uh, Michael Schumacher, F1 driver. And then, of course, the recently retired Roger Federer with over a billion in, in, in earnings over, over his career. Um, so, and there probably are some more, but these were sort of the top 10. So it's, it's an interesting mix of, superstars many of course are americans uh now your thought on this you know you know when when a young kid now is uh, coming out of high school or out of college and starting to play a game whatever it is he is he's playing right and in this case whether it's basketball or golf or you know boxing or, or tennis here um you know there obviously are ways to become a billionaire which is maybe the dream of many around the world um how do you Deal with that. How do you manage those expectations of the parents of the kid um, and not get their head in the cloud? Because you know, yes, those those superstars made that money, but you know, there there was a reason. There's only a few of them. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, first of all, let's talk about NILs. Correct. Because we now have a system for the last year in which a high school football quarterback can start doing marketing right. and start branding himself or a high school basketball player. Yep. Um, or But so, is it high school or college? Is it, or is it both? High school. High school. Okay. There are no rules anymore. Right. So starting last July 1st, they told any college player they could do it, but that opened the doors for, any high school players are doing it. Okay. And now you have high schoolers doing it. Wow. And so a lot of this is going to depend on the how grounded the parents are. And then if they sign with marketing agents, how grounded they are. Mm. And in terms of managing the expectations, because that player still has to perform. Yep. And Uh, before they get grandiose, they have to have skills that keep them, um, you know, grounded in this uh, in this whole thing. So this is a lot about branding and social media. So it's what they what their brand logo looks like on social media. So the currency of this is how many followers they have on TikTok yep. and Twitter. Yep. Like Ronaldo, and, exactly. Right. So what's going to rule the day in terms of, of commercial endorsements or monetizing that website or, or the, 
or the Twitter feed or anything else is how many followers they have. And that's going to depend on their ability to produce interesting content. And so it's the skill set's going to be who can help them design uh, an attractive and interesting presence uh, up on the uh, internet. So it's going to be a combination of how they perform primarily, but then who's got the ability to attract viewers and followers. And um, um, the, the other source of income, going back to your previous question, is a number of these athletes are taking equity in businesses they endorse. Right. So they're taking equity in businesses they can help grow. Yeah. So, and then if there's a liquidity event, they ride the growth of the equity in, in, and then they have a liquidity event and they can reap millions from that. Absolutely. Uh, so that that was started by the rapper who did the water. I'm blanking on his name right now. Yeah, but Fifty Cent. Fifty Cent. But there you went. And yeah, absolutely. Patrick Mahomes owns part of uh, Hyperice, and um, so these athletes now are smart enough to know that if they're lending brand, they should not simply. They should take, take a monetary fee, but they should also take, take equity. Take a piece of the action, yeah. And, and is that part of what you now you're involved in as well? Do you negotiate help negotiate some of this, or is that again done by someone oh, else? No, yeah. no, no, no. I mean, uh, Cyber Sports has a really sharp CEO, Chris Cabot, who does the majority of our endorsement deals, and he's really savvy about that. But you know, for example. Patrick Mahomes took an ownership interest in the Kansas City Royals mm-hmm. baseball team. Okay. And uh, his wife owns part of the uh, Kansas City women's soccer team. Right. Okay. Right. So they're basically bringing their fame and, f- and name and likeness to other ventures, whether it is, uh, I guess, uh, regular business or, or even other sports teams um, and, and drive the growth on the back of it. Uh, I like that. And, and I, yeah, there, there are plenty of good examples out there for sure. And, and, and that's what I like about when, when, you know, when I, when your, your introduction, which we went through earlier, you know, building assets into standalone brands, I, I think that's a, that's really captures, I think what you want to do, right. To create these brands, which then a on the field generate the returns for the athlete, but also go beyond, right. Is that sort of part of your big vision, bigger vision? Yes. And additionally, you'll see them go into the production business. So, mm-hmm they will create content Correct. under their own production company. Yeah, yeah. So, James has a couple of there with, I think, several partners. That's and right. you'll, see, you'll see more of our athletes doing that. They'll create uh, motion pictures, documentaries, um, uh, all sorts of game shows and, and different content. Yeah, like yeah, no. That again, there's just and this is the fun part of it, right? The uh, the power of an athlete's brand if you do it the right way, and of course if you stay out of trouble. Uh, let's say take Tiger Woods as a 
you know, example both ways, right? He's a super brand in so many levels. Uh, that's why he made it two billion dollars, but also crashed and burned uh, on many levels and had to rebuild itself again, right? So, um, well, this, and that's the tough part. This is where we sit them down at the very beginning and say, "You are living under a microscope, and if." You are not willing to hold yourself to a higher standard, and that means not driving with alcohol in your system, not going out into a place where alcohol is served, and um, having people around you so you don't get into a fight, um, being careful about your interactions with the opposite sex, never putting your hands on anyone in anger, um, you know, then play on a sandlot. No one will have anything to say about your behavior, but um, um, you are held to a higher standard. And uh, if you accept that, prevention is the best way to avoid anything that um, will knock you off this path. Absolutely. Now, I'd love, love to uh, get your thoughts on, you know, you've worked with so many of these superstars uh, over the years. Um, you know, what is the trait, that one thing, what separates them, right? You know, you've heard about it in movies, you've, you know, you've whatever, but uh, you experience it, right? You see what makes, you know, Patrick Mahomes and, the, you know, the uh, Troy Aikmans of the world different to, to the next guy. Um, you know, what is it, what you feel, um, just, just, you know, is it that tunnel vision? Is it that whatever, you know, how they live and prepare or what is it, what you see? Well, let's start with an incredible work ethic right. that never stops. So these are people who are <clears throat> in shape every day, hmm. who work out all the time, who are constantly studying a game plan, constantly aspiring to get better, right. who, um, um, uh, so preparation um, all the time. What you see is the tip of the iceberg. What's underneath it is this insatiable appetite to succeed that manifests itself that way. Right. Um, the second thing is, is, um, is performance under pressure. So the quarterback's throwing a couple interceptions, the crowd is booing, the uh, center's looking at the quarterback like he's on hallucinogens for his play calling. The game's getting out of hand. What does he do now? Mm. How do you perform in adversity? Can he compartmentalize, adopt a quiet mind, elevate his level of play in critical adversity to put a team on his back and perform then mm -hmm. in critical circumstances because most athletic performances come down to a few critical plays. Right. So it's, it's um, the ability to shake off adversity and perform in critical situations. Right. Yeah, and that makes complete sense. And then the fun part, the best part of that is what you just shared. It doesn't just relate to sports; it relates to life in general, and for sure, business as well, right? Um, that focus. Listen, we're all going to get pushed back and knocked back. The question Absolutely. is, can you be resilient? Can you rise again? Yeah. Um, 
guarantee you, you will in your life get knocked back. And it's okay to take a few seconds to, to recover, but can you spring back again and shake off what just happened and perform? Absolutely. Now I love that. And, and looking back at my own career here, that's for sure the case. Uh, it is always coming back. It's it's the comeback, which counts, uh, not uh, not the knockdown. Now, let's, let's uh, sort of start wrapping it up here with the last couple of questions for you. One is, you know, and I know you mentioned it earlier, you sort of obviously now is uh, built the business uh, up again. You've you kind of created an environment where you're handing over and and you know having succession plans. But where do you see the future? What is it where you after been in this business now for you know four decades? Um, where do you see it's heading? You know, and maybe talk a bit about the world of gaming and esports because I think you were a board member at a gaming uh, gaming company ages ago already, um, and obviously saw that as well. Um, just share a bit of that. I uh, went down to Dallas and uh, was in a big uh, auditorium with about 8,000 people, and I watched uh, the Dallas Fuel, uh, an eSport team and company, play Houston, and all these young people were sitting there. They weren't playing the uh, e-game. They were watching these people play it. Correct. they were standing up and screaming like these players were rock stars. <laughs> and I, I told somebody, I've seen the future. It's right here. Right. And these people are, you know, they're teaching classes and doing, uh, you can get a major in esports. So right. clearly you got to look at this. But one of the things I'm working on is, is biomed breakthroughs that can stimulate energy and focus for athletes at the end of a game, can recover them to service more quickly, can deal with the issue of concussion, and um, and then for the rest of the population, um, drive cognitive acuity at a higher rate and um, and extend life in anti-aging. So they're wow. hyperbaric oxygen, light stem, stem cells, uh, cognitive process called RTMS, mm-hmm. another one called that operates around the concept of neuroplasticity. I think there's going to be a health wellness uh, revolution. I'm going to take this into uh, pro sports and collegiate sports, and then for the rest of us, I think we can finally cure uh, concussion, uh, which the world doesn't know about yet. And I think we can uh, uh, help uh, more longevity for the rest of us and better cognitive function. So I'm putting this all together as a package and going to roll it out soon. Wow. I love that. And, and, and again, it just uh, shows your ability to consistently uh, come up with new things and, and continuously evolving who you are as a as a business person as a, and as a man. So uh, that is really cool. And I look forward to hearing more about it. Maybe uh, when we have a chance to talk again in the future, well, you know, maybe you can we can talk more about it even. And so you're working with, I guess, different groups, different companies to develop some of these new uh, ideas and concepts and, and medications, et cetera? Yes. Yeah. And uh, I'm in the process of writing another book. All and right. uh, 
and I'm about to do uh, start a new podcast and uh, just a few things in my spare time. <laughs> Here we go. He's joined the podcast. Uh, uh, that's cool. Well, hopefully one day maybe I'll become a guest on yours. <laughs> but, you uh, yes, uh, you know, but yeah, we should mention that you do have a second book out, which is called The Agent, uh, my 40 year career making deals and changing the game. Um, so that's the one I'm going to get soon here. I didn't manage to catch that before we had our call here, um, but it sounds exciting and for sure is on my list. Um, now, I know you do a few other things, and this is sort of really my maybe my last question here. Um, you know, outside of, you know, what we just talked about, I, I believe you're a junk professor as well. Um, of course, you have other roles as an industry leader, what you're doing in philanthropy, you know, maybe just share the last few things there, um, you know, to wrap it up and round up uh, this amazing career for viewers. So uh, we hold agent academies for young aspiring agents. We're having one in Las Vegas, November 13, 14, 15. We teach people how to um, recruit, how to negotiate, how to uh, set up a charitable foundation. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, if you go to steinbergspeaks.com you can find it i'm trying to create a next generation of uh of uh principled ethical sports professionals right. to bring them into the field and we also do sports career conferences but um this will jump start somebody's uh career and uh um it um uh, i've done 27 of these and trained a whole bunch of people so if you're interested check it out definitely yeah we'll make sure that uh, the podcast will spell that out properly where to find that and again thank you so much for your time sir um it was a real honor and pleasure talking to you um like the movie inspired many i think this podcast and, and clearly your stories will inspire many others uh, and i wish you all the power here for many more years to go and hopefully we'll have a chance to a meet in person and b you know talk again thank you kindly yeah absolutely have a great day there the sports entrepreneurs by marcus lure podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.